Kinda. We can just we can just chat. Yeah. About what? Um, what's what's happening? What's what's oh good man. in the world? Um, what's good? Oh hey, okay. <laughs> Is anything good in the world? Do you know what? I uh I I have a funny anecdote to okay. lead us in here. <laughs> On my way here, I was walking uh to the library and I saw a truck which had vinyl signage all over it and the signage was for Moose Anger Management. Okay. And so I assumed that it was just like Moose Anger Management. Uh-huh. But the way it was laid out is you could have read it as Moose Anger Management. And so mm. I just thought, what a Canadian business. <laughs> they manage Moose Anger. Well, you don't <laughs> want a moose angry at you. I know that. It'd be quite a problem for some. <laughs> now, the, I guess the question is still, is it angry moose or is it humans with moose anger? Ooh. Oh. Those meat moose. Those mises. Um, There's no. so many options. It's really ambiguous. Oh, oh. Need some commas in there. That, that, that leads into another anecdote, which maybe you've already heard. Um, have you ever heard the internet clip of a woman who calls in to a radio show and she's complaining about how the deer are always crossing at the deer crossing? And why are they doing that? Because the deer crossings are on the highway where it's really, really dangerous for a deer to be crossing. Like, why can't the deer cross where it's a little bit of a quieter part of the road? They, you know, why, why, why are the deer crossings in all these high traffic areas? They should move the deer crossings. Deer, deer only like to cross in heavy traffic. <laughs> it's a known trait. Yeah. No, it was like this, it was like this radio host is like trying to like walk her through logically how he's like, so you believe the deer can read the signs? And she's just like, well, they, they cross where the signs are. I mean, like, they should just move they, the signs. They if made they, the oh. signs. If they moved the signs, then there wouldn't be so many collisions. I've hit three deer this year. Wow. You know, why don't the deers cross somewhere else? That maybe, was her argument. Maybe there's a different problem here. <laughs> <laughs> she's hit three. Oh, there was a very different problem. But it was, yeah, it's just fascinating. It was this fascinating. Because, like, otherwise she sounded, like, really lucid and really intelligent. But just, like, no one could convince her. That the deer crossings <laughs> were made by humans and had no bearing on where deers cross the road. <laughs> I wish we got callers in on this podcast. No, you don't. No, no you don't. No, no you don't. I've seen comment sections on the internet. We don't. We don't need call-ins. <laughs> What book are we doing this this week? So we read Fante Bukowski by Noah Van Skyver. And apologies in advance if I'm pronouncing his name wrong. I've heard a few different pronunciations online, and I'm not completely sure, so we're going to go with Noah Van Skyver. I think it is Van Skyver. All right. Yeah. Okay. I heard Scriver and right. Shriver. I have actually. I, sh- I should know. I have a girlfriend who's proud of her Dutch heritage. Who will like? She will let me know when she listens to this podcast whether I've been pronouncing Van Van Skyver correctly or not later. So yeah, yeah. and let, let me know because he's actually um, he's become one of my favorite comic artists mm. um, because of 
of doing this review and reading the book for this episode. So yeah. I would like to know how to pronounce his name. Well, he, I, my perception is that his his star is on the rise because a whole bunch of his like one page web comics uh, started showing up in my Facebook feed hmm. uh, in in the week leading up to this podcast. The algorithm knows. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Even though I've posted nothing on the internet about what I'm doing for trade waiters. <laughs> Stop right. it, Google. Um, so we have a couple of trade waiters away today. Uh, I believe uh, Jam is lost in the woods somewhere. We hope she makes it out alive. And Kay is busy writing the great Canadian novel. Yeah, she she assures me that Within the week, she's going to have the great Canadian novel completed without any help from an editor. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Do we have a character building question? Well, speaking of writing, okay. um, the question is, what has given you or caused you writer's block? So I can go first. Mine is when I have a scene that I want to portray fairly realistically. So, for example, say you have some characters who are stuck in the desert and they're trying to survive. There's probably, there's definitely some real desert survival techniques. And so sometimes when I have a scene that requires um, a fairly heavy amount of research, I think it sort of intimidates me and I get stuck. Um, Another example was uh, castle design, which is very, like medieval castle design. It's very specific um, and getting totally caught up in those details and being unable to move forward from that. (laughs) <laughs> all right and who are you oh and i'm jess okay all right so uh, even though i had uh, i'm jonathan by the way uh I, even though i had advanced knowledge of what this question would be and time to think about it uh i couldn't think of a good answer i've definitely had writer's block plenty of times it's a pretty common phenomenon i think uh but i can't think of anything that sort of is a usual cause of it I think uh, most of my writer's blocks have involved like trying to figure out how to tie plot points together. Like, how do I connect all these dots in a way that makes sense and seems natural, doesn't seem forced? But there isn't really anything more specific to that that causes them. Uh, I do have an answer for the sort of opposite of the question, Mm -hmm. which is, uh, when am I least likely to experience writer's block. Uh, And for that, I think it's always when I'm too busy to write. (laughs) (laughs) The curse of the writer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I can can definitely sympathize with that, uh, the flip side response. Um, I'm Jeff Ellis, and I... (laughs) I'm trying to think. I've been. Tr- I've also, even though we had the question in advance, I've been trying to think about specific moments of writer's block, and I can't think of any specific uh, moments of writer's block. I can think of long periods of not being prolific, and then I think inspiration struck, and then I was writing. So I think maybe I was blocked and didn't know it at certain points in my life. Um, Anyone who's been creeping me on the web probably knows I was doing a webcomic called Teach English in Japan, which has sort of just dropped off in the middle of the story with half the cast uh, lost on Mount Fuji. And I've been now working on another completely different story called Crossroads. Um, and I would say that um, I wouldn't call it a writer's block, but I definitely 
the the scope of teaching this in Japan got to a point where I needed a change of pace. I needed a break. Um, and that's kind of the result of Crossroads, uh, which is what I'm working on now. Um, and I guess I would say that Crossroads occasionally gives me moments of pause. And that's not really because I don't know what's going to happen in the story. But I would say that I sometimes I consider whether I should or should not be writing a comic that has LGBTQ um characters in it i don't know if that's my place to be writing that comic and then i tell myself well that we're not going to get anywhere if i just write straight white male protagonists either so uh i do occasionally have fraught moments there i also have good friends that tell me like no no just finish your story so um <laughs> I, I i i am i am I have every intention of finishing it by the end of the year yeah, yeah. i definitely relate to that too um like sometimes um, well, we were talking, me and Jonathan were talking about, like, sensitivity readers. Um, mm-hmm. When you're depicting something that you are not or a group mm. that you're not part of, you always want to you want to be considerate um, and definitely, like, do some research. And I think as long as you do, it's it's great. Um, I definitely had um, – I definitely had some uh, – some beta beta readers go over my script uh, yeah, who are awesome. from the LGBTQ community who are like, this seems okay. Like you're you're not offending me. So I was like, okay, good. Step one. Yeah, that's that's really good. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure. There's definitely people who wouldn't even do that. Right. So you're you're already um like on the right path there, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I just I writer tip to everyone uh-huh. listening. There's a writer tip. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Pick good editors and then listen to them. And consult with the groups of people you're going to write about. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Working with editors, uh, let's maybe talk about this book. Yeah, uh-huh. should I talk a bit about um, Noah Van Skyver himself first? Sure. Yes. So he is an indie American cartoonist. He was born in 1984 in New Jersey, and he started by making this comic called Blamo in 2006, which is a really interesting concept. It's a one-person anthology, and I've seen this around occasionally, but it's, it's less common than you'd think, and I think it's a great idea because... A lot of artists start with shorter stories, and I think it's good to start with short stories. So if you have um, multiple 10, 12, 16-page comics, you can put them into a one-person anthology. So he left these uh, comics around uh, coffee shops in Denver, and he mentioned uh, in his blog, which I was reading, researching this, that it's an annual chart of his progress as a cartoonist, and he likes to put like his best and more serious work in there. So he's put out ten and a half issues of Blamo, and he's been nominated for a lot of awards. Fante Bukowski, which we'll be talking about, was nominated for an Eisner. His other notable works include uh, The Hypo or Hippo, uh, The Melancholic Young Lincoln, My Hot Date, and, of course, Fante Bukowski. I that's a, I I that's a really cool story. I love that he was, like, just stashing comics at coffee shops. <laughs> I think that's a great—I think that's a great technique— yeah, um, and in Vancouver, I know multiple people who do that as well. They hmm. they go to smaller stores. It can be small comic book shops or retailers and just have their comics out there. And I think it's a really great way to start and um, sort of begin your career. So I really relate to that. And that's actually something I'd like to do is put some of my zines in local comic shops or coffee shops if they'll take them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I... Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> so All right. I should probably also talk about 
we should talk about what Fante Bukowski is about. It's about this this uh, guy who leaves his dad's law firm to become a famous author, but the problem is that he's not good at writing, and his main goal <laughs> seems to be that he wants to be famous. So he starts emulating all of these writer cliches. So he starts drinking, he uses this old typewriter, um, he lives in a hotel, even though it's heavily implied that his family's fairly wealthy, so he's really just imitating poverty to be eccentric and to lead this writer's life. And so he's definitely not a character you want to emulate. He's not um, a hero or a good guy, necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, what did you think of Fante Bukowski? Uh, I think um, it it hit a lot of uh, hit a lot of uh, nerves on me. Um, yep. <laughs> it like was very relatable. I think I I think you know uh, looking at this in just terms of like the artist's journey, like I I definitely related to I don't know some of the frustrations that he experiences, and then I also sort of saw like some of my own missteps early on in my comics career. And it's, I don't know, I just, I find like, this is like a very, uh, I, I, I think of this as like a cautionary tale. It's sort of like, yes. don't don't be Fante Bukowski. Yeah. <laughs> don't do any of the things he does. Do do something else. It's um, it's sort of like everything. Yeah, it's like, it's all the, the stuff you want to avoid. And I think like I've generally... Especially in, I think, the last year, I've, I've like, avoided this much better. But I think that, like, it's definitely a good read for anyone who's, like, just getting into the into arts and maybe feeling some of the, the struggles of art. Uh, I feel like this is, like, a good, relatable read. Um, so I went into this being somewhat skeptical. I wasn't sure if I was going to like it because fits into that sort of or at least it seems to fit into that trope of the 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 terrible person who's a writer and then everything goes wrong and we're supposed to feel sorry for them but by the end of the book I really like this book uh, and what I like about it is that I don't think the narrative is asking us to feel any sympathy for Fanti Bukowski at all no, <laughs> no I think no. I think you yeah. are encouraged or welcomed as a reader to completely hate him and everything about him and to not feel any sympathy for him and to be happy when things go wrong for him. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I enjoyed that part. Yeah. Like, I enjoyed feeling feeling better about myself when Fanti Bukowski <laughs> just does awful things and everyone, literally everyone else around him is a better person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I'm not sure what you all think of this, but I think it could almost be seen as a parody of the sad boy indie comics. Oh, for sure. Mm. Um, mm. Where, where you know, perhaps in the past, in the real sad boy indie comic, you are meant to relate to the struggle of this um, young man. Uh-huh. But in this one, I yeah, I agree. I think uh, this is, is really something else, and it was very pleasantly surprising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, I think I went into it sort of knowing um, you know, even just his name, right? Fante Bukowski. You, well, you sort of know that he's a bit of a doofus. Yeah. And I actually say that lovingly because <laughs> I actually love him. Um, <laughs> somehow it kind of manages to not, like, maybe somewhat like Wendy. Wendy's pretty different 
Um, mm. But I, I feel I, like there's some ca- comparisons that could be made. I, I found myself thinking of Wendy yeah. uh, when I was reading this. But mm. I definitely found that I... Yeah, I empathized more with Wendy than I did mm-hmm. with oh, Fante sure. Bukowski. Yeah, no, <laughs> Wendy is someone I want to succeed, whereas Fante Bukowski can stay lost in the woods forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I think that though there are some similarities, they are there are um, they are different genres and they mm-hmm. communicate different things. And um, Fante Bukowski is also just a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, Wendy in total spans a few hundred pages and it covers a lot of themes and it gets immensely complicated and this is a bit of a, a shorter probably I'd say more comedic story on the whole Yeah. Um, but I, I, I guess one thing about it that I was impressed by like with Wendy is that we're not tempted to hate the character It's not. it doesn't feel cruel to, or at least it didn't to me in, somehow in spite mm-hmm. of being fairly um, critical of this man yeah no, I, yeah, I, I think I think what you're saying is maybe that it was um, critiquing him without being mean spirited. Yeah, if that makes any sense. Like I, I feel like it, it was presenting him this portrait of this person, and you can see the mistakes they're making. You can see the the problems and the priorities that he has, but he still has like some, you know, some genuine uh, moments. Like even though I don't sympathize with him like um i i definitely like uh there were some moments in the in the book where like uh i was i was open to like him maybe being able to turn himself around somehow like uh like this uh the the woman audrey that he meets at a party like Mm -hmm. she's way too nice to him he doesn't deserve to have her in his life at all uh and she's like (laughs) incredibly patient with him and it's like you know, you know, I'm like, wow, you've got this like good thing in your life, but you're not valuing it. Like you're stupid. Um, mm-hmm. But like, you know, I was at least kind of glad to see, you know, he has these these human moments. Like also, like when he's leaving the bar with the um, like, there's two two scenes where he meets up with this blue collar worker at a bar, mm-hmm. and the second time that they leave the bar together, the blue collar worker actually keels over and dies, and. He's like in tears calling 911. Yeah. And I felt like that was again like a very human moment. Like like yes, Fante Bukowski is incredibly flawed and he has like he's got some terrible terrible things that he needs to deal with, but he's not like he's not a monster. Like he's not going to leave someone to die in the street. Like he's <laughs> still going to at the end of the day, he's still going to call 911 when someone like falls over and dies, you know? Yeah. Like uh, it's like he's he's got lots of flaws, but he even he sort of has like some redeeming characteristics or like some uh, limits. I don't know. It's and like... he, he adopts a cat. <laughs> yeah, he's... but then he gets rid of the cat, and that was infuriating. He even name the cat. Yeah, he just See, throws this poor cat back into the alley. That was terrible. That, See, like... I think I think uh, none of the none of the quote unquote good things that he does. I think are enough for me to feel any sympathy yeah. for him. I think yeah. it's just just enough so that I don't want to just stop reading about him. Yeah, yeah. I guess like I think what I'm saying is like it it um, those little human moments um, made him have a little bit of depth, and he needed depth because if he was like a two dimensional caricature, mm. then this only needed to be a five page comic. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the fact that he had a little bit of depth 
there was a little bit more going on than he is just a jerk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's what made for, made it a compelling read to the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned um, the girl that he starts seeing, and I think because we see that other characters find him likable and want to be around him, it redeems him a little bit. Other mm-hmm. people find him likable. Because she finds him funny, right? Mm-hmm, All these mm-hmm. cliches when she's yeah. like, why do you have a typewriter? And he says, I just like to see how hard I can press the keys. <laughs> and like, she's like, oh, you're right. You're so funny. But there's sort of like, he's being kind of serious. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, his friend that we also mentioned who, who dies, uh, people kind of, sometimes they kind of like him. Mm-hmm. Though they often don't as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's, I mean, there's that really, really prickly interaction he has with the, well, every interaction he has with the the literary agent yeah. is just <laughs> like, oh, cringing, cringeworthy, um, which again, like I, I definitely like, I related to that so much in, uh, in that scene of just thinking about maybe my first and second year of like going to comic conventions and having this mentality of like, oh, that person's really important. You should like be friends with that person or like that guy like is a publisher. You want to get to know that person. And I'm sure my approach to that was probably about as skillful as his approach in this, in this book. And I mean, I don't know. I just like, I feel like the moral of this book that I took away is like, you just have to like, not worry about any of this stuff. Like his problem, like, and Honestly, like he, he is a bad writer, but the, that he's a bad writer isn't the problem. His problem is, is that he's prioritizing all of these other things in front of the writing, yeah. right? Like yeah. he could maybe become a better writer if he focused on writing, but everything he does in this story is nothing to do with writing. Like he's, he's going to parties. He's trying to suck up to literary agents. He's trying to suck up to magazine publishers. He's... Like he's adopted this ridiculous pseudonym where he's called himself Fan. He's not even called. That's not his real name. He's not Fante Bukowski. His, his name is Kelly Perkins. Yeah, he's Kelly Perkins, <laughs> and he's calling himself Fante Bukowski. And all that means is every time he talks to someone, they're like, "Are you related to Charles, B- Charles Bukowski?" Bukowski? Yeah. And he's like, "No, I just really am a fan." He, what did he say? He's like. Bukowski changed my life, yeah. so I changed. He, he changed my life, so I changed my name. Yeah, and then his girlfriend says, "That's the worst thing I've ever heard." Yeah, yeah, which is like a that's a legit response. That's mm-hmm. a legit like that would be like I was like ah you know just call me Jeff Kirby. Like <laughs> come on, like get over yourself, man. I'd probably be called um, <laughs> Jess Dragon Age Pollard. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, but like um no, I, but you know like he um. He's putting like he's 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 trying to become like a rich and famous author and he hasn't taken the time to like refine and develop his craft. He's like wanting to be given a pat on the back and a reward because he finished like one book, you know, like and this is the thing. It's like he wrote an entire novel. Now, it turns out he was misremembering an existing novel and, like, (laughs) inadvertently plagiarizing. But, like, he put in the time to, like, type out an entire novel. He put in that work, which is, like, in a certain way admirable. But then it's, like, he doesn't get anyone to edit it. He doesn't, like, solicit feedback from anyone. He just, like, hands it to this literary agent and is, like, now you'll see what a genius I am. Like... He's just trying to skip all the steps. He's trying to go from step one to step 
25 without doing any of the in-between steps. That's a very accurate summary. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. There's, there's one point where he talks about how long he's been a writer and how he's, he's not successful yet. I forget if it's one year. Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh, he's but... he's like 24, never published. I'm a failure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was yeah. such... And again, that was a relatable thing because I know when I was 24, I definitely was just like, oh, man, like that ship has sailed for my comics career. And, you know, now I'm almost 40 and I'm still like, well, I haven't quite got there yet, but I've cer- certainly come a long ways. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's quite a few... Um, famous authors who didn't publish until they were in their 40s and in some cases even up to their 60s like Mm -hmm. um one book i'm reading right now as meat loves salt i believe it was written by a woman who's a uh, history professor and this is her first novel and i think she's in her 40s or 50s Hmm. so yeah i mean you know it's never really it's never too late and it's it's very uh it's it's really harsh on yourself if you're, you know, in your 20s thinking, I've never been published, I'm already a failure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, guess, I think that's what I like about this is watching him, like, have the wrong ideas and make the wrong choices consistently. Like, he, every step he takes is the wrong move. And so his failure is of his own making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, the the one thing that I like the best about this is how... Most of the people he meets happen to be writers as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they all have their own sort of stories and problems and whatever. And it really emphasizes like how he's not special. Mm-hmm. Like he he's convinced he is destined to be this amazing, famous, successful, rich author. And uh like everybody around him is also an author and he doesn't like acknowledge this at all or like give them any credit that that they deserve anything it's mm-hmm. all uh, it's all about him he's just completely self-centered uh and some of the people around him are successful some of them are slightly successful some of them have given up and quit but uh it doesn't feel like any of the other authors that he meets are the victims of their own hubris in the way that he is mm. that they uh, are successful or not successful based on like external circumstances, things that are outside their control, uh, and that he is the one person who's sort of in control of his own destiny and is like just failing, failing, failing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It 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 kind of made me think a lot about just like the I don't know, kind of like the. I want to say like success delusion or something. It's just like, I feel like within a lot of, within all art communities, I feel like there's this perception of having quote unquote made it. You know, I think that within author communities, people talk about making it as an author or making it as an actor or making it as a comic book artist or making it as a musician. And, you know, I think that, um, what happens is a lot of people get so fixated on this idea of making it and they lose sight of the art, like the actual, just the creation. Right. And I mean, really like making it is like getting hit by lightning and you can't really control it. You can't like force it to happen. Um, 
and and it, you, you, the best thing you can do is just refine and make better work and like mm-hmm. challenge yourself critically and go like what can I do to make the work better see I'm gonna, I'm gonna disagree I don't think there is such a thing as making it well I think yeah. you you yeah. make stuff yeah and the stuff has some kind of level of success and then you make more stuff. Yeah. There's no point where like yeah. you've made it and the work is done yeah, and you no, don't have to do any no, more work. No, and that's, I mean, and that's, I think the other, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think he's expecting there to be a point where he's made it Yeah, and nobody else in the world that he lives in is under that same delusion. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, exactly. Like, I mean, even the, the people that I, I used to consider having quote unquote made it in my conversations with them, I, I now find myself thinking like, Wow you're still working really hard. Like it just never stops. Like it's Mm -hmm. just, Mm -hmm. you just keep working really hard until you don't want to do it anymore. (laughs) And by then it's too late and you have to keep doing it. Yeah. 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 I think that's all, that's all very um, accurate. In, In some of Noah's blog posts, he has a really great blog. He, he talks about making work that you enjoy and that being something really important. And I, guess, I think near the end, I'm going to read some of his posts because he has some great advice about um, writing and making art. And yeah, it's, he also talks a bit about social media too because talking about making it, like a lot of the time people measure that now based on followers or likes. Um, you know, I want to make it to 10,000 followers. And now success is so quantifiable. Like you can see that your last post was less popular than, you know, your current, the post you made recently. Um, so it's it's pretty hard to um, escape that, and uh, I don't think it's something that comes up in Fante Bukowski. But so for, in terms of the story, in terms of our discussion of it, we got to the point where he sort of starts seeing this woman. She leads him to the agent, who rejects his work because it's basically a copy of the unbearable lightness of being. And then Fante <laughs> throws the manuscript out and actually has a moment of self awareness, right. where he goes. What's wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that helps him be a little bit redeemable as well because mm-hmm. he has these moments where he knows he knows that he's not doing the right thing or that uh there's something a little little off. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. I um yeah, over, and then he he packs up, he moves out of his hotel, yeah. and leaves town, and there's this really bizarre exchange with like a a guy who picks him up and he's hitchhiking and he gets picked up by this really weird guy. Yeah. And I felt like that scene kind of threw me off a little bit, only in the sense that like overall it was a slightly amped up kind of world. Like the characters were a little bit extreme, but I felt like that whole interaction in the, in the car where the guy is like trying to convince him that this gun is a marijuana pipe and to put it in his (laughs) mouth. And and then and then like he's like oh no that is a gun actually sorry don't touch that and then no no that that dildo is is actually a marijuana pipe you should put that in your mouth like it just keeps going like, yeah I don't know like it was the scene itself I I found humorous but then I also found it like a little bit out of sync with some of the other scenes I don't know it just that one scene stood out to me as like a bit of a an odd an odd scene in comparison to the others I don't know what you guys thought of that yeah I, I think it <laughs> I think it did to other people as well because I was reading reviews of this book and um after Fante's manuscript is rejected and he moves out of the hotel the book comes to a fairly quick end 
And basically we have, uh, I'd say, three scenes. Second to last scene is this hitchhiking scene where um, I guess Van Dyke puts a gun in his mouth by accident. <laughs> he leaves the car and then um, runs into the woods. And the book sort of uh, comes to an end with him looking at the stars. And um, I agree. It, it was a strange scene and a somewhat abrupt ending, mm-hmm. but I really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what I, do you think, John? Um, I, I interpreted that scene as being how unprepared Fante is for being in the quote-unquote real world. Like, he, part of, I think part of his plan in, like, just, like, abandoning his life and, like, going out into the wild or whatever, I, I think this is uh, a strategy for him to like maybe this is how he becomes a writer because other writers have done this like go out into the world and experience things and then come back and write your your novel uh and he's just like ill prepared ill suited for that like (laughs) even this effort like something that seems like no if you want to be a writer you have to go out and do stuff right that makes sense that's logical yeah uh there's a logic to that It's, it's the most logical approach to writing that he's had yet and yet he just he can't he this is not for him. It's not going to work. He can't do this. I mean, he puts on a backpack and then wanders through the woods <laughs> and gets attacked by animals. Like, uh-huh. yeah, he sees uh, an owl and yells, "Ew!" Yeah, the whole way through, he's just complaining, "Why am I doing this? Why am I in the woods? Like, the, I shouldn't have done this." He hates nature. There's well, stuff in my hair. Yeah. <laughs> now I saw that there's um, maybe Jess, you maybe you can answer this, but I saw that there was a second volume. And that's and this ended so abruptly. I actually wondered if there was like a bigger volume that continued the story that we were overlooking. But you were like, no, no, this is what we're reviewing. So I cut myself off here. But is there like, does the story continue? Um, it does continue. This is its own book. It's I, I as, as far as I understand, you can just read Fante Bukowski on its own. Mm. Um, it's not like you know, the the climax is in the later works I, mm. but it's not finished so i'm not mm. i'm not a hundred percent sure okay i actually bought the second book and i uh i started reading it because i loved the first one so mm-hmm. much so as far as i can tell it does stand on its own okay but um yeah i'm excited to read the next few books i think there's yeah. there's a third one coming as well yeah i'm, I'm interested uh before you read these uh, blog post do we want to talk about the art a little bit yeah let's talk about the the art yeah um, and the book design i love this book design the book i'm the design. only one with oh. a physical copy and so jealous yeah, yeah i i regret buying this digitally after seeing jonathan's print copy so it's basically like uh the size of a um a paperback paperback novel uh except it's really skinny because it's not a very long comic the cover i'm not sure what book this is a uh, a takeoff of, but it's obviously some classic it's novel. The, it's a fake, the, like, penguin Yeah, classic, I was going to say, the, the design is a penguin classic cover. I yeah. don't know if the image itself is specific, but it's, uh, it's a penguin classics book. Yeah, and then it's got, like, <laughs> the main character's face collaged on top of someone else's face. Uh, but it looks like like a penguin classic type novel. It's got, like... The, the edges of the pages are yellow. Yeah. Even though the pages inside the book are not. I love that. <laughs> Everything about it is a facade, like Fante yeah. Bukowski's life. Uh-huh. It's, a, it's a beautiful harmony of 
book design and the content inside. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's so brilliant. I actually might have to buy a physical copy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like the the art style. It's sort of simple and scratchy, but there's so much expression in the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm curious if he's using um, like water soluble uh, pencil crayons because there's like a scratchy pencil crayon feel to the colors, but there's also like a bit of blending. Yeah, the the flat colors have got to be digital. Like, there's no way that's not digital. Hmm. Uh, but the pencil crayon stuff, uh, I'm not sure whether that's, like, pencil crayon that he's scanned in and then hmm. put digital colors over top of it, or whether it's um, a digital... doesn't look like a digital tool that he's using. It looks like real pencil. Yeah, like, it's got this really fun, loose kind of... Um, is outsider art the right word? I don't know. It just feels very like a indie. very, very like indie style. I'm not sure how I feel about some of the collage that goes on inside. Like generally he draws stuff, but then like when the hitchhiker picks him up, there's like a photo of a car. Yeah. Just pasted mm-hmm. in. And it's like, oh, so you just didn't know how to draw a car in perspective or I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think it fits the theme mm-hmm. to have like, oh, I don't know how to draw a car. I'm just going to collage one in. Mm-hmm. The only thing that really took me out was there are... Um, speech balloons where he's fixed individual words with it looks like post-it notes Mm -hmm. like that was really distracting see I I agree uh, see now I really I like that I I thought that gave it that like raw indie sort of feel is Mm -hmm. that he just is like taping over like his mistakes and like that's it this is the work I'm not (laughs) gonna go back and redraw this Um, but then it draws emphasis to mistakes where like that's not the, it's it's there's drawing a whole, emphasis to the author whole panel and not to the story. A, that's a, whole a panel. post-it note too. Huh. I I might have um, some knowledge about why that happened in his blog post. New rules. Um, he actually talks a bit about the process, and um, he says the first Fanta Bukowski book was drawn on a six by nine sketchbook during his breaks while working a day job at Panera Bread. <laughs> so <laughs> that roughness might have to do with how this was actually created um, mm. compared to. His works like Blamo, which he says he does at home on 11 by 17. This was a much more um, loose and free project. Uh, he said the unpolished art somehow made it funnier and easier. And he could take this anywhere. So um, he was taking it around. to He was traveling and taking it to coffee shops and things like that. So who knows? <laughs> Maybe it was even a bit damaged. Well, I don't know. I mean, he obviously knows how to use a computer. He could have... Uh, if he had chosen to, he could have like fixed text. That's true. So that you That's wouldn't true. be able well, to I mean, tell. There's, there's. I mean, um, yeah. One of uh, Steve Lacouillard uses post-it notes to make corrections to his work, and then he uses Photoshop to blend it all in. Yeah, you'd never know that. So you'd never know it. Work, yeah. Though, um, so I don't know. I, I, I would say like in a more polished piece, it would take me out. I feel like the roughness of this, um, I didn't question it. Like yeah. because the art itself was so scribbly and the balloons were not even straight and just clearly he'd like made a, a spelling mistake and he was just covering it over with a post. I don't know. I just felt like that <laughs> whole thing just added to the aesthetic for me of just like, it's just super rough and raw and like, uh, no, no second drafts, which yeah. that is very much in, in the spirit of Fante Bukowski. No second drafts. That's it. I'm done. I wrote, I wrote my book. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. This comic is perfect. I got it done. I you don't need I, to look back on it. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> I, I think the artistic choices are in harmony 
And this is, includes the book design and the art style and these post-it notes. They're all sort of in harmony with the themes mm. in the book. One issue I had with the post-it notes and like kind of the, the whiteout, or I'm not exactly mm. sure what he used, was that it seemed like, to me, those words were really emphasized. Yeah. But they weren't meant to be. Mm-hmm. Like It was like the person was actually saying... Um, that word really loudly. <laughs> so it made for some funny... I felt like sometimes dialogue. it worked really well, but you will receive exposure. Yeah. But see, yeah, then it, yeah. it's not used with that intention, though. If it was used that with that be. intention, it would be completely mm. different. That, All right, that well, is true. Well, I, I, we can we can agree to disagree then. Um, <laughs> I just want to also point out that... Um, Fante's old friend is basically Archie. Yes, oh, I yeah, wanted to I talk about this. Why? Why not? Why is he Archie? I guess he hates Archie. <laughs> <laughs> well, Archie, Archie is uh, a great symbol of uh, you know someone who stayed the course and mainstream the success. Status quo. Yeah, maintained the, the status, status quo. quo all the way through. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, that's sort of how I interpreted it, and. Uh, <laughs> I started to get hesitant because in the book, there are references to Noah as a person. So at one point it says, the um, publisher says, oh, how about you write a story about some loser who can't write? And then it goes, editor's note, taken. Like, <laughs> so, so it's, and then he, so he sort of references himself as an author. And then at the end of the book, um, he draws a picture, Noah drew a picture of himself in the Fante Bukowski art style, saying something like, and Noah's a really successful artist who has lots of money. Yeah, it says, oh, right. Noah Van Skyver is a well-known and admired cartoonist, and he's wealthy. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And so he's almost um, sort of jokingly comparing and contrasting himself I think to the main character. I think that's inevitable, though, if you're a writer writing about a writer. Mm-hmm. Like, anyone who reads that is going to be like kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, you're a writer, so yeah. this is at least partly about yourself. He just embraced it. Yeah. So he I just think, rolled with it. And that's, that's why I usually don't like when writers write about writers, because it's like, I don't want to know about writing. I already know about writing. I want to <laughs> know about something else. But in this case, like because fan, the, the main character is so irredeemable... <laughs> Um, like it feels okay to me. Like he's taken. Uh, now I'm assuming here. I don't know anything about the author, but I'm assuming he's taken everything negative in himself and turned it into a funny character, mm-hmm. and has pointing at that character and saying, "Here's all the things not to do." And I assume <laughs> some of these are things he's done himself. Like they're they're relatable in the sense that I have been in. The, Similar situation sometimes, but unrelatable in the sense that it's clearly whatever the scenario is, you can trust our main character to make the wrong choice. <laughs> and I kind of like that predictability about it, that it kind of becomes instructive in a way of like uh, whatever. Uh, it's sort of like, what are those? That's old. What's that old um, like comic? Uh, Goofus and Gallant. <laughs> like this is Goofus. This is a story about Goofus. There's right. no gallant in this story. So, does anyone have uh, any closing thoughts before um, I read Noah's post? Well, really, uh, one thing I really quickly wanted to note was um, I really enjoyed all the famous author quotes at the beginning of all the chapters. Yeah, the, some of those quotes I, were really good. Like the the quotes themselves yeah. are generally good advice. Yeah, and then Fanti Bukowski just 
isn't able to like interpret them or follow them in any sensible way. Yeah. But I mean, like I felt like they were like, they, they sort of, again, in terms of contrast, you have these really like, like heavy gravitas, like writer's quotes in contrast to Fante Bukowski, just completely falling apart and not, <laughs> not doing any of that stuff. Like, yeah, it was, it, I, I enjoyed that. It sort of worked uh, in contrast to like the content, like <laughs> The content itself didn't deserve those quotes, but it, it <laughs> sort of worked out really well. Can I can I actually disagree? Oh, okay. sure. Yeah. I feel like he followed the quotes really well. Oh, okay. I think Fante, Maybe too well? I think, yes. <laughs> I think that's the problem. Oh, okay. Like, um, I personally think that Fante's the kind of guy who would buy all these books about how to write, but never write. Yeah. So he'd buy books about how to be a good writer. So one quote says... To defend what you've written is a sign that you are alive. Um, and then William he goes Zinsser. in. And then he goes in defending his absolutely terrible book. Yeah. yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Um, so the quotes are actually, um, it's sort of like he's taken them to heart, but. But without context. Without context. Or he's, nuance. He's, yeah, he's sort of enacting them, but in an unfortunate way. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a, a cargo cult. He's like, this is what famous writers do and say. Therefore, if I do this. I will also be a famous writer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to find yeah. another example of where he, he actually does the quote. Oh, yeah. Well, this, like, okay, here's one. Um, the, the quote just before he, like, abandons his life and goes out into the woods is, you've got to find yourself first. Everything else will follow. Yes, <laughs> yes. Or, or one where, um, I don't need an alarm clock. My ideas wake me. Ray Bradbury. Um that's him, like, sleeping in, hungover, <laughs> not planning his day. Like, he, yeah. he's taken the quote. He's sort of correctly interpreted yeah. it, but... Okay, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> Actually, now that you frame it that way, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like he's taken the lives of famous writers as an excuse to be sh- Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. He's like, oh, this famous author was an alcoholic, so I should be an alcoholic. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Even oh. though, like, like, I don't, I'm not. Uh, I forget who he was talking about when he was talking about being an alcoholic, but uh, he oh, well. quotes he quotes Stephen King at one point, and uh, Stephen King famously had substance abuse problems that held him back considerably. Mm-hmm. So, like, maybe that's not the way to go. Yeah. Well, or, I mean, then you look at, like, I don't know, say, like, Hemingway, where it's just like, okay, so he wrote a few books, and then he died of liver failure. So, I don't know, is that really a great legacy? Uh-huh. I think Fanny Bukowski <laughs> would answer yes to that question. Right, right, yeah. Something yeah. probably about how, like, you know, the good die young. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. yeah that's no way to live. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah, I was going to say, like, if we're going to start naming like authors who had substance abuse problems, <laughs> I think we'll have to block in another uh, uh-huh. hour or two for the podcast. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't write if you're dead. <laughs> yes. True. That should be, that should be one of the quotes. That's yeah. my famous quote. Yeah. 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 Jonathan Dalton. Dalton. <laughs> you can't write if you're dead. That's a good one. Um, All right. So did you want to share with us these, uh, blog points? I, I would, um, like to share them so like i said noah has this really um awesome blog and um he shared these five points about telling stories that i haven't actually heard before and i would really like to pass them on to everybody because i thought they were really interesting 
So the first one um, is always have something to work on. Plan your next comic as you close in on the end of your current work. That's one I'd heard before, um, but then he goes on to talk about how losing momentum can be really bad because it's, it's very difficult to build it back up. Oh, yeah. No, that's um, definitely true. Like, between uh, when I finished um, A Mad Tea Party and started Phobos and Demos, I definitely lost all my momentum because mm -hmm. the schedules didn't line up very well. There was too big a gap between finishing a book and printing it and shipping it out and starting writing the next book. Mm -hmm. Whereas it would be uh, a better plan if I had if, if this had been something I could have planned and had thought ahead of time about to be at least started writing the next book while in the the previous book is in production. Yeah, I think that's exactly what he's talking about. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, I'd sort of heard the quote about momentum before, but that specifically, like the, the detail of that, not as much. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought that was really cool. Number two is try to not write for other cartoonists. And this is one I think I've never heard before at all. So he gives an example where somebody says, um, so, someone told him that only poets read poetry. And he says that when you're making work, try not to impress other cartoonists. Like the most important thing is that you're making work that pleases you. Number three is create more media than you take in, which would be really hard for me hmm. because... I have I go on Tumblr and I reblog things. Um, See, and I, I don't know if I agree with that one. Yeah, I mean, how could you possibly achieve that? I, that's that's a great question, right? Like, I don't know if that would be possible for me because I also have Instagram and you uh -huh. are scrolling through. Maybe he means per hour, like spend more hours of the day making stuff than consuming stuff. But considering how many hours it takes to make a page versus how long it takes to read a page, like there's a gap there. Yeah, I mean, maybe I'll read... I can read the entire paragraph just for context. Sure. So what he says is, Simply put, social media turns me into a panic-stricken, knee-jerk reactionary, always looking and ready for a daily dose of outrage, jealousy, and paranoia. It's not good for me. I felt fear and anxiety every day because of it. Is the human brain meant for so much incoming lunacy? I made a point to use it only to share whatever I've been working on, two to three new comics or drawings a week that make me feel great. Okay. All right. I can see where, where he's going with that. I mean, yeah, I think in terms of, like, staying off social media, I could see that making sense. Well, that is, yeah. uh, the, from that paragraph, it sounds more like he's talking about how you spend your time rather than how much you produce. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's saying spend more time making stuff than you do reading Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, and I would agree with that. Even though in terms of looking at art, I think sometimes when you're say you're writing a script it can be a little dangerous to be reading something else at the same time because sometimes it can leak into what you're doing i don't know if this is exactly what he means but yeah sometimes um if you're consuming so much and producing less than you're consuming artistically it can kind of be in conflict that's only that's been my personal experience anyways um so number four was really interesting and, and that's where he talks about um blamo and its difference between that and his creation for um, his process for Fante Bukowski. So, with uh, Blamo, he says that Blamo is his work, which he takes very seriously. He does it on eleven by he does it does it at home on eleven by seventeen inch pieces of Bristol, whereas Fante he had in a more casual sketchbook that he took with him. 
Um, so his advice is to sort of, I think, work at different sizes and with different levels of, um, if this is a word, officialness, which is something I've never tried before. Like, I've never... I do have um, my more formal projects that are 11 by 17 and they're at home and um, it's a much more refined process. But I haven't tried also doing a really casual comic that I just keep in a sketchbook. Hmm. So it's something I'd like to give a give it a try. I, yeah, that's an interesting idea. I've, uh, been, I've been getting in the habit of documenting my different trips and travels uh, mm-hmm. in a sketchbook and I highly endorse it. So, oh. I mean, most of my work is really polished in manga studio or i guess uh, clip studio paint these days but i now also have these comics that are just produced in a moleskin with a, a number eight micron pen that are like more in the fante bukowski kind of finish yeah, yeah. <laughs> and definitely need a few post-it notes over some of the lettering <laughs> <laughs> the last one number five is never fear a blank page, which is one I've heard before. But when he goes into detail, he says something I've never heard before, which is, here's something to do. Take your phone and flip through your photos. What's going on in there? Daydream, remember, recall, see what those pictures from your life are, and you'll have something to write about. Hmm. A sweet idea as okay. well that yeah. I would like to try. I don't take yeah. enough photos for that to work for me. But that, you don't have that seems like a really good idea. Not a lot. Yeah. Um, cool. Right. Uh, so final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I would say, um, Oh, and, uh, would you recommend? Yeah. You know what? I, I would recommend this. I think, uh, I'm now, uh, interested in reading more Noah Van, Van Skyver comics. He just had a really, I don't know, like a one page that was bounced around Facebook today that I thought was really poignant. And, and not the same as Fante Bukowski, but um, I really, yeah, I, I enjoyed reading this. I feel like it it was definitely like, uh, in terms of what we talk about him taking the negative parts of himself and writing it, I felt like I was reading the negative parts of myself. Um, so it wasn't necessarily always like a super like upbeat, happy read, but like it was like an, it was a good read. It's like, it's good, a good critical personal analysis read. Mm-hmm. And I would say if you're, if you're a struggling artist and you know you're feeling a little bit frustrated like read Fante Bukowski and just take a little checklist be like am I doing these things okay I'm gonna stop doing these things because Fante Bukowski's doing them <laughs> anyone who doesn't like your work is a jock yeah oh oh that's the worst line oh that's yeah. the world is run by jocks oh that's oh I hate that I hate that so much oh I hate that so much I see that in I've seen that like straight faced in people's writing and it's like the worst that is the worst thing ever when someone's totally writing their story like yeah that's jocks it's the, the coldest take of all time <laughs> Um, right, I uh, I enjoyed this book. Uh, I would recommend Fante Bukowski to anyone who is fed up with uh, sad boy writer stories. Mm. Uh, and you can be fed up with those stories uh, along with Noah Van Skyver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so should we do our shout outs? I had another shout out in mind, but I actually just spontaneously pulled this up. Uh, while we're recording. So I'm Jeff Ellis. Um, you can find my work at jeffreyellis.ca or eastvancomic.ca. But uh, I'm actually going to shout out uh, Gail Galligan's John. So Gail Galligan did these little short uh, comics about John Arbuckle. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, those were great. Yeah. And it's just about if John Arbuckle was like a less established cartoonist than Jim Davis is. And um, the one I read uh, was John going to a comic convention and he hadn't been to a convention before. So he was having his first convention experience and his big takeaway like was not money and it was not prestige and fame. And uh, he had a great time. And that's all I'm going to say. You should read it. But uh, I just, we were talking about kind of goofus and gallant. And so I would say that uh, Gail Galligan's John comic is the gallant to Fante Bukowski's goofus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, I'm Jonathan Dalton. Uh, You can find my work at phobos-comic.com. By the time this episode goes out, um, I should have new pages on the internet for you to read of my comic that I haven't drawn in a year. I have one book to shout out, and I'm going to think I'm going to save it for the next episode because I have not been reading very much. And this uh, my shout-out fits better with the other book. So, I got nothing. Oh, my shout-out also fits better with the next book. Do you have two shout-outs? Did I shout-out Toast of London? No. The TV show in the past? No. Shout-out. Oh, Toast of London is such a good show. It's on Netflix. I'm pretty sure I've already shouted it out, but I'm going to do it anyways. <laughs> have you seen... Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Yes. Okay, because that's where he starts. I know, yeah. Um, Matt Berry is yeah. so good. And it's sort of Fante, but with an actor. So they even look kind of similar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, he's a, it's about this horrible, horrible man who uh, wants to be an actor and all of the surreal misadventures he goes on in his quest. Or he wants to be a, a successful actor. He is technically an actor. He gets some roles, but... Um, yeah, so my name's Jess, um, I also haven't updated my webcomic in a while, but you can find it at liquidshell.tumblr.com, and, uh, I'm inspired by Jonathan, I'm gonna say, by the time this episode comes out, I'll have new pages. Okay. We have a pact. We have a, a blood pact. Yep. Cartoonist <laughs> death pact. Yes. Well, we'll check on, in on this at the end of the next episode. <laughs> yeah. Whoever so doesn't update dies. So don't actually die because then you can't write. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's a famous pretend, quote. It's a pretend fam- death pact. There's a famous writer's quote I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a, a famous author once told me, if you're dead, you can't write. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, uh, Jeff, what's our next book going to be? Oh, uh, it is going to be I Kill Giants uh, by Joe Kelly and uh, Ken Nimura. The Trade Waiters is presented by Cloudscape Comics. Thanks to the Vancouver Public Library for letting us record in the Inspiration Lab and Sleuth for the music. You can find us at tradewaiters.tumblr.com as well as iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 